So good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, a warm welcome to all participants, to the panelists and to the global disability community. Happy International Day. My name is Miguel Morato Gordo. I am the uh, Director of Strategic HR at United Nations. I'm male, I have uh, salt and pepper hair and beard, and I'm wearing big black frames this morning. In partnership with the Kessel Foundation, JP Morgan Chase, Microsoft, Salesforce, the United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA, the United Nations Development Program, UNDP, United Nations Children Emergency Fund, UNICEF, uh, the Office of Information and uh, uh, Communications Technology, OICT at the UN, the Department of General Assembly and Conference Management, BGACM at the UN, as the Office of HR is facilitating today's panel discussion on the advancement of employment for persons with disabilities. Before we begin, I would like to go over some housekeeping rules. Um, and I believe we're going to be able to show some of these on screen. Uh, let me uh, share that uh, the meeting will be recorded. Um, uh, also that international sign interpretation is available thanks to our co-sponsors from the Department of General Assembly and Conference Management. Uh, you may access live transcript by clicking live, live transcript at the bottom of your screen. Also would like to ask you to please post your questions that you may have in the Q&A box. So let's begin. And to do so, we would like to start by asking our audience if you could uh, fill out a quick poll um, indicating where you are dialing in from and what organization you work for. So talk to Geneva, uh, DAFA, New York, starting to come up. Dhaka, Texas, Jersey City. London, Nairobi, Chicago, Copenhagen, Vienna, Tampa, Austin. Montreal, Manila, Philippines, Paris, Montpellier, Istanbul, Turkey. Helsinki, Calcutta, Caracas, Santiago, Vancouver, Glasgow. List is growing and growing. And I see also the number of participants is now at 340 in Zoom. So great. I'm it's really, it's really. Uh, heartening to see that uh, we have a lot of participants from all over the world at, uh, 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 linking in at different hours throughout the day. So at uh, this time, uh, uh, I would like to uh, ask Sue to share with us a welcoming video by Ms. Catherine Pollard, the United Nations Undersecretary General for the Department of Management Strategy, Policy and Compliance, who will be giving us uh, uh, some opening remarks. Sue, over to you. Good day and warm greetings to all. It is my pleasure to open this panel discussion on advancing employment for persons with disabilities as part of the activities to mark the 2021 
International Day for Persons with Disabilities. This topic is one that is both close to my heart and a key priority for the organization as we seek to build a more disability inclusive workplace. I firmly believe that disability inclusion is a human right and an organizational imperative. This year marks the third year since the launch of the United Nations Disability Inclusion Strategy and the recently released 2020 report of the Secretary General on the strategy, which highlights some of our achievements. We are encouraged by our achievements in the employment-related indicators. To ensure that we remain on track, we will continue to mainstream disability into our human resources programs and initiatives. We're streamlining our reasonable accommodation process to better support its implementation. Our recruitment platforms are being upgraded to be fully accessible to applicants with diverse abilities. We're improving our data collection process to support more data-driven decisions. We are strengthening our partnerships with various outreach and sourcing platforms and actively promoting the UN as a disability inclusive employer. And finally, we will continue to advocate for greater inclusion through our awareness campaigns and build the capacity of our workforce. We acknowledge that there is more work to be done and quickly in order to build and sustain enabling environments. Today, our panel of experts will discuss how technology can support disability inclusion. They will also discuss strategies for a safe post-COVID return to work. Armed with the knowledge gained from these discussions, we will continue to strengthen our response to ensure the removal of barriers to inclusion. Our goal is to ensure that persons with disabilities are afforded equal rights and that they are able to lead rich and fulfilling careers with the United Nations. I wish to recognize the members of the disability community, particularly those in our workforce, who work tirelessly to advance the UN agenda. Special thanks are also due to the Kessler Foundation, JP Morgan Chase, Salesforce, the International Disabilities Alliance, and all of our other partners. Thank you all for your invaluable contributions and being here today. I would like to thank uh, 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 USD Catherine Pollard for her opening remarks. And I would like now to invite uh, Ms. Cherith Ann Chalet, the United Nations Assistant Secretary General for General Assembly and Conference Management uh, um, for, to give us her welcoming remarks. Over to you. Miguel, thank you so much. Uh, good morning, colleagues, experts, practitioners, innovators, and champions of accessibility. I am delighted to be here today on, on this International Day for Persons with Disabilities on behalf of the Department for General Assembly and Conference Management and share some of the work that we have been engaged on in the department to improve the accessibility to each element of conference management and services. And we are also delighted to be alongside Catherine and, and Miguel and in this presentation and this event today. Today's event, which has become a regular feature of International Day for Persons with Disabilities at the UN, provides us an excellent opportunity to take stock 
and to discuss two extremely important issues. One, the role of technology as a crucial enabler of accessibility and inclusion, and two, the safe and accessible return to the workplace. My colleagues and I are especially happy to be here to share DGACM's innovation efforts to automate multiple processes and ensure that the benefits of this automation are equally shared and serve to empower staff with disabilities. We look forward to engaging today and to exchange ideas, which will enhance our collective vision of a modern, diverse, and fully empowered workforce that conducts its work in a barrier-free environment. A workforce that welcomes all, a workforce that thrives by helping all to fully contribute, and a workforce that leaves no one behind. Digital accessibility has been a key need for some time, but has become especially important during this COVID pandemic when the public health emergency required staff to work remotely. Over the last few months, our department has worked with representatives of the community, including the World Blind Union, to use the most recent barriers as a forcing mechanism and raise awareness of barriers among service providers and developers to help to achieve meaningful change. We also facilitated an awareness raising presentation for developers at CERN in Switzerland, who are working with the UN team on improving Indico.un, which is our corporate registration system there. In addition, in the, in the production of UN documents, redevelopment work was done to, Recording our, flagship, in progress. to our flagship in-house web -based translation interface, Iluna to make it more accessible to persons with disabilities. eLuna provides ref access to references, terminology, machine translation, and quality checks. Technology also helped create a virtual workplace for all under business continuity arrangements. Now that we have gained solid experience using technology platforms, which in a have enabled us to continue doing our work and remain connected, we need to hold on to these benefits and make the necessary adjustments so that the two worlds of virtual work and in-person face-to-face work can coexist and mutually reinforce barrier-free access for all. In the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, member states are called upon to implement its noble principles and approaches. The United Nations, and its secretariat itself has its work to do to improve and expand the accessibility of many of its operations, including its conference services, facilities, and information and communications. In this, we also benefit from and rely on the support from the member states. For example, in resolution 71323 of September 8th, 2017, the General Assembly decided that in all of its meetings, Provision should be made for accessible seating for representatives with, people, with persons with disabilities, in which case the seating order was in a given meeting is changed in such a way as to allow the requesting delegation to move to the closest accessible seat from the one it occupies in accordance with the order established for each session of the General Assembly. And the seating order of the rest of the delegations is moved by one seat. DGACM facilitates such accommodations. We hope that the innovative approaches, partnerships, and best practices discussed 
during the two distinguished panels today will help us to further refine our tools and methods of implementing the UN Disability Inclusion Strategy and fulfilling the expectations of member states towards full accessibility of the United Nations. May we be inspired by the contributions, humanity, achievements, and talent of the hundreds of millions of persons with disability around the world. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Chalet, for your welcoming remarks. So it's time for us to start with the first of our two panel discussions. Um, the first one will be focusing on advancing employment for persons with disabilities, the role of technology. Roger DeRose, who is the president and CEO of the Kessler Foundation, will be our moderator for the first panel. Before I hand over to him, it's my privilege to introduce the panelists. Uh, Suzanne Shanahan, who is the Chief of Service Enterprise Application Center of the Americas on the Office of Information Technology at the UN. Uh, Cecilia Elizalde, who is the Director of the, the Documentation Division in the Department of General Assembly and Conference Management at the UN. Uh, Danielle D'Italia, who is the Managing Director of JP Morgan Chase. Sunday Parker, a Access Technology Program Manager at Microsoft and Thomas Franz, Senior Manager from Salesforce. So with this, Roger, over to you. Miguel, thank you very much for the uh, introduction and uh, hello everyone, uh, wherever you might be around the world. Uh, I I'm honored to uh, host, uh, at least moderate this first segment of the United Nations discussion to celebrate the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. And of course, my thanks uh, go to the leadership of the United Nations for making it possible uh, to reach a global audience, in addition to opening this up to the public as well. Um, it, it's uh, great to share the moderating platform with our good friend, Jim Sanucci at JP Morgan, who will be facilitating that second panel discussion. Uh, my name is Roger D. Rose, president of Kessler Foundation. We're a large public charity uh, based in New Jersey, and we're focused on rebuilding the lives of people with disabilities through a world-class research program. We're dedicated uh, research staff members that um, focus on brain and spinal cord injury. We focus on stroke and multiple sclerosis and other neuromuscular conditions. In addition to our world-leading mobility research and cognitive research, we're also a grant maker supporting employment initiatives for people with disabilities. And in fact, my colleague, Elaine Katz, uh, you can see on the screen, will be on the next panel with Jim Sanucci from JP Morgan. Uh, I'm a Caucasian male, about six feet tall or 183 centimeters for those that use the metric system, the world. Uh, graying dark wavy hair, I'm wearing a black suit, white shirt and red tie. Uh, let me start by saying that almost everyone listening today we all know the numbers. There are over a billion people in the world today who live with a disability. And um, you know, whenever guests come to tour Kessler Foundation or Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, I make a point of sharing with them that if they live long enough, they will eventually need to have access to two great healthcare providers. The first being a great acute care hospital. And secondly, an excellent medical rehabilitation hospital, because if they do live long enough and have a traumatic injury, like a stroke, a fall that causes a, 
uh, a spinal cord injury, a back injury, a neck or a brain injury, or even a hip or knee replacement, they're going to need an excellent medical rehabilitation hospital to recover. And my simple point is this, that most of us don't think about it. But as we age, we will likely experience a temporary or a permanent disability. And of course, we could be born with a disability, hidden or physical. But unfortunately, whether we're born or we acquire a disability in life, it will likely impact our ability to uh, achieve employment at the same level as others, maybe not in all cases, but in many. And uh, we know that the employment rates are much lower for people with disabilities and uh, even the poverty rates are higher uh, as well. And it, it's this disparity that really has caused this employment gap that we see between those with and without a disability. And sadly, here in the United States, there's only 35% employment participation rate for people with disabilities. And that compares to about 70% for people without a disability. And it has remained uh, about the same since the Americans with Disabilities Act was signed in 1990, over 30 years ago. So we at Kessler Foundation were one of the first US charities since 2003 to fund over 50 million in grants to organizations that demonstrate that the hiring of people with disabilities adds shareholder value. It doesn't matter the organization, whether it's for-profit or nonprofit. And fortunately, other public charities have joined in now and making investments in employment initiatives for people with disabilities. So with that, um, uh, this morning, I've been asked to moderate uh, the innovative technologies and digital, digital accessible tools that can help uh, narrow the employment gap between those with and without disabilities. And since we've all been introduced by Miguel, perhaps as each panel member is directed a question, they can start by giving a visual description of themselves in this age of virtual meetings, which um, will help our listening audience as well. So let me start with a series of questions that these individuals can provide insight on the topic of innovative technologies and digital accessibility tools. And I'd like to ask Sunday Parker and Tom France from our panel, if they would address this first question. And you know, this first question has a great deal of controversy surrounding it. And it has to do with artificial intelligence or AI tools in the hiring process. And again, if any other of our panel members would like to build on an answer to this, please feel free to do so. But Sunday and Tom, let me direct the question first to Sunday. Um, and the question is, AI tools have the potential to support the removal of barriers faced by persons with disabilities in the hiring process. And I'd like you to please share some of the advancements that you have seen in this area and how technology can be used to include people with disabilities. Sunday. Thank you, Roger. Hello, everyone. Um, it's such an honor to be with you all today. Again, my name is Sunday Parker and um, for participants who are blind or not able to look at their screen, I'm just gonna give a brief uh, visual description. I am a uh, female in my late 20s. I have long blonde hair and I'm wearing uh, a red lipstick and a, a plaid sweater today. Um, thank you so much for, for this question. We really see AI as having the potential to empower people with disabilities uh, with more information uh, and more intuitive experiences. And this can be in the classroom, in the workplace, um, or just simply out in the community. 
And we see AI as having impact in all kinds of technology experiences. Uh, even today, we use AI in uh, captioning for the deaf in Teams, um, PowerPoint um, and image descriptions in seeing AI, as well as uh, reading tools for uh, those who have learning disabilities in immersive reader. Um, we're really proud of what we've been able to accomplish leveraging AI. Um, but we also realize that no one company can address all that is really possible here. So in 2018, uh, we launched AI for Accessibility, which is a 25 million uh, five-year program, which is aimed at leveraging the power of AI to create experiences uh, that amplify the capabilities uh, of people with disabilities. And this program hosts calls for proposals periodically uh, throughout the year. Um, and this covers topics like education, employment, uh, mental health, and, and, and more. And we award Azure grants uh, to get the most innovative technologies to people with disabilities around the world. Um, but also, uh, there are 200 million people today who use Microsoft 365 um, to build and edit and share information daily uh, with their colleagues. And we want to make office content accessible um, and as simple as using uh, spell check. So using AI, we make it easier for um, anyone to be accessible and inclusive by creating content um, that is accessible and doesn't have any accessibility issues when their colleagues um, uh, open documents. So things like accessibility checker, it will automatically prompt uh, to fix accessibility issues or to improve accessibility um, before users ever encounter the documents. So this is one example of how we're using AI right in our products to improve accessibility experience. Um, another advancement in this area is our seeing AI application. And this is an intelligent camera app that provides uh, users with information around who is around you, what is around you. And it includes environmental context um, like people and objects and verbal descriptions of, of documents or, or money, for example. There's just so much potential to use technology and AI, but it really has to be done thoughtfully. And I think Thomas, if I know him, is gonna try to touch on that fully, um, but really acknowledging that it can be leveraged to create uh, more inclusive experiences, um, just done with, with intention and, and thought behind it. So thank you again for, for this uh, very important question. Thank you, Sunday, appreciate it very much. Tom, would you like to build on that as well? Yeah, definitely. I will start with an introduction. I'm Tom Ferrance. I'm the Senior Manager of Accessibility, Public Relations, and Partnerships at Salesforce. I'm a disabled person with too many disabilities to list. I'll take up too much time and neurodivergent. 
Um, I'm a white male in my late thirties with a beard that has just the perfect amount of gray and silver. I think that means that I'm gaining some wisdom. I'm not too sure. Um, yes, I think that uh, Sunday covered a lot of the good stuff and and the things that we need to s- start with. And I wouldn't say it's small because it's all really important, but it's a it's a good measure on how we can start bringing uh, AI practices to accessibility. Uh, spell check saves my life every day. Um, As we look at the future, though, and I think that that's the area where you get um, AI and ML machine learning engineers, you all want to look to the future. And we can uh, use Meta, which is Facebook as an example. That's where I came from before I came to Salesforce. In, you know, how can we start using data to classify a person so that we can you know, provide a more tailored experience there. And I think that there's been a lot of work done in diversity that's been successful. And and that's usually around race and gender. I think the difficulty is, is that disabilities isn't anything like those areas. And typically um, a disabled person, a person with a disability, depending on, on where you are in the globe, um, is an outlier in data. And that, that's not something that... Um, AI and machine learning is supposed to do, you know, it's, it's, it's to have a statistical norm. So, you know, there's some things that we can do around certain disability types that are more honed in. If you have, if you're from the deaf, hard of hearing community or the blind, low vision community, you know, some of the stuff with technology might be uh, a little bit easier. And we're doing that kind of work with screen readers and all of that. But when you start to get into other areas, and I think about this as a neurodivergent person, um, if you're autistic, you're on a, on a very variable scale. And so how do you classify a person who's autistic and, and start to tailor an experience when that might not uh, work out too well? And I, and I saw a question on there from uh, Stefan around recruitment. And that's one of the areas that I worry about. Uh, usually machine learning there is, is based on clinical algorithms. So it wants to go towards that medical diagnosis area. And again, it's like, let's say you provide a job board service and going with neurodivergent, because that's my space again, you know, I get classified in a bucket and start getting jobs tailored to me that don't even fit the accommodations I would need, the skill sets I need. And one, it just feels less inclusive, but it's also setting me up for failure. So I think that we really need to figure out a way to get machine learning experts in this space. I think that there's still a gap when it comes to pay um, at organizations between somebody who works on product versus somebody who focuses on accessibility. So how do we push that? Um, yeah, I think that we just need that to start with more training. And I know that uh, Stefan, the International Labor Organization, the Global Business Disability Network organization such as IBM is putting huge focus on all of this. So I'm excited for the future. I'm also scared as a father of four. It might not affect me, but it is going to affect my children as, as they start to enter the workforce. Right. Thank you, Tom. That's a, a great summary. And, uh, you know, just a footnote here, uh, Sunday, you know, uh, I, I think we talked about this, that Kessler Foundation and Microsoft's AI for Accessibility has been given uh, we gave a grant to the Ontario College of Art and Design to explore bias 
in the current hiring systems. And it's a one-year grant to investigate the non-disability employment data. And we know that companies are increasingly using AI, as you as you both mentioned, to screen potential candidates to hire. And the current profiling is usually based on existing data and cultural compatibility, which oftentimes discriminates against people with disabilities. So let's go into our, our second question, which is for Suzanne. And I know, Sunday, you have some thoughts on this, but Cecilia also has some thoughts. And uh, let me ask this question. So, how, and let's start with Suzanne. How can we ensure an accessible workplace for persons with disabilities? And, and, and what are some of the practical strategies to address gaps in access, in application, and usage of technology? Suzanne. Thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here today on this important day and with such an amazing group of panelists. My name again is Suzanne Shanahan and I describe myself as a white woman in my early 50s with light brown hair and hazel eyes. I'm wearing a black sweater with a white bow and I will say that uh, Sunday and I are wearing remarkably similar tops. Um, to your question, Roger, um, at the UN, we are committed to inclusive employment. So if we actually succeed, then the workplace becomes the next challenge. And I see two areas where we can improve workplace inclusion and addressing gaps in, in access and usage of technology. Uh, first, we need to better maximize the accessibility functionality in the applications that we use that already have them. As, as Sunday pointed out, some of our you know, major platforms have these features, but we really need to do a better job of socializing them. Many of our day-to-day -day tools have these functionalities out of the box, you know, free of charge. Um, they, they have accessibility checkers, image tagging capabilities, voice activation cap capabilities, which are actually really not used uh, very much at all. Even just to navigate windows, the, these are there, they're available. Uh, and live captioning. And we're also learning that these capabilities help everyone, not just a person with a disability, but so many of them are helping all of us in, in our day-to-day -day life. Our, and our job when we're socializing them, it's not just to say, here's this feature and how you use it, but we want to use this as an opportunity to teach our community why we're using them and, and why this is important and that this type of inclusion mentality is a core value to the, the work and, and how we want to work with each other at the UN. This week, uh, we're releasing a new accessibility content theme on our Internet Knowledge Gateway. This is the central portal for operational um, guidance. And we've brought this there to create a, a central point to start to co collate and bring information and video learning and checklists to our uh, staff population. We've also added a new uh, assistive tool on top of the, the gateway itself to make sure that the gateway is not a barrier to the content that's there. I think that a second area where we can close gaps is when we're building or buying software and applications and, and to change and to start to think from an accessibility first mindset and a universal design approach. Um, this type of compliance needs to be a priority when we're in a procurement exercise and when we engineer websites and applications because it is, it's just far more effective, cost effective, and, and from an engineering perspective, uh, faster to design with these requirements up front rather than paying or trying to fix them later when you have a fully formed um, product. So I think that um, those are, are two areas where we could make some real progress that will deliver immediate benefits. Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne. I appreciate that. And I know, Cecilia, you have some thoughts on this as well. Would you 
like to share that with the audience? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Roger. Uh, good morning, uh, good afternoon. Uh, thanks for um, inviting me to participate in this panel. Uh, I am a, a woman in my 50s. I have a red dress, a red lipstick and purple glasses. Uh, I, I work at the UN as the director of the documentation division, which is a very large division. We have uh, 550 translators. and We produce the documentation of the United Nations. I'm very interested about uh, the presentation of Sunday about how we can make those uh, documents even more accessible. Whereas this will be like a very nice uh, uh, exchange of uh, information. Uh, in my capacity of uh, director of the translators, the projects to uh, create uh, new tools for them. And one of the tools is called ILUNA, Electronic Languages of the United Nations. Uh, and when we created it, we didn't, we didn't know, we were not aware uh, that we had in our team already in Geneva, not in New York, two blind translators. So after we deployed the tool, uh, we find out that nobody told us that uh, we had uh, colleagues uh, that uh, couldn't use uh, our tool. So of course, I mean, we started um, trying to adapt the user to the tool, you know, to say, okay, maybe they can learn some shortcuts, maybe we, they can, uh, we can use some strategies and we failed. So now we, what we have learned is that we need to start in development of applications for our workforce to start thinking of accessibility since the very first time. And another big, big lesson is that we need to include the user community in the development, in the testing, because they can tell us what they actually need. Uh, now uh, we are doing another system that is called GDoc to manage all the documentation uh, workflow. And uh, we are starting, you know, on the right foot, uh, learning from the experience uh, from the past. And, and I want on this, uh, I know that some of our colleagues uh, who participated in this uh, project here, both from the user community and the technical team are here. So I, I want to thank them because it has been a great partnership in learning from, uh, from each other. So, and I think also what uh, we, are, uh, we are trying to achieve is uh, that the uh, community of uh, colleagues who have special needs actually access the tool exactly the same as everybody else. Uh, this is for us uh, extremely important. And our tools, I want to say, is they are not only used uh, by the translators uh, at the United Nations in New York, Geneva, Vienna, and Nairobi but also we have all the regional commissions and other organizations like UNESCO, IMO, WMO, who are also using. So I think that uh, this is a part of uh, our strategy of making you know, uh, our tools really accessible for everybody in the team. Thank you. Thank you, Cecilia. You know, while we're talking about this question, I'm gonna spin a bit on a dime here and go to, to Danielle. Danielle, um, you know, cause we're talking about accessible workplaces and I know that uh, JP Morgan is, has really taken on this, this mantle under Jim's leadership uh, uh, in a significant way, but talk about some of the changes that JP Morgan has spearheaded over the last 18 months, which you feel have provided the most significant areas of improvement for employees with disabilities at JP Morgan. 
Sure. Thank you, Roger. And thank you, everyone, for the honor and privilege to be part of this panel today. Danielle Detalia here. I head up employee experience at JPMorgan Chase. I'm a female in my early 40s with long brown curly hair, wearing a gray shirt with some puffy sleeves for a little bit of a dynamic. <laughs> um, so with that said, really proud of the work that we've been doing at JPMorgan Chase. And as much as we've had great impact, there's still a road ahead of us. So I don't want anything I say to minimize the fact that there's still more work to be done. We've had a significant focus over the last couple of years and really pivoting the mindset of our organization to understand a parallel that I often relate to is it's no different than cybersecurity. And you'll probably look at me with a quizzical face or, or, or challenge that. And the reason I say that is through the course of the last 10 years of the financial institution, making sure we're securing our data and the assets of our customers is non-negotiable. Well, guess what? Ensuring that we're an accessible workplace is non-negotiable as well. And the way we take the empowerment that we have as an organization of 50,000 technologists is to use our buying power, as Suzanne alluded to. We should not be purchasing software that's not accessible. And we hold our partners at Salesforce and Microsoft and many others accountable to that. And so that is a key change and area we've made in making sure our master services agreements are engaging with sourcing. The education of the individuals across our organization who do have buying power are making sure that we have the right language and commitment from our partners that they will provide us with accessible software. And if they're not able to, we will help them. We'll support them in the journey to understand where the gaps are and help partner with them on remediation. We educate our 50,000 technologists. They need to understand what it means to deliver accessible software. We provide training. We've built out SME capabilities. We actually have control frameworks based on a policy that Jim helped institute to make sure just as equally want to ensure our customer-facing products are accessible, anything we deliver internally also needs to be accessible. And the last thing that I'll share, which is actually one of the areas that had even more impact than the technology procurement and development, is recognizing it doesn't just take technology alone. What we found is that you can have the best technology in the world if you're not enabling the right people with the solutions they need and providing them the support, it actually doesn't lend itself for making much of a change. And so one of the things that we've established is an assistive technology support desk. And what I mean by that is these are individuals who are fully dedicated to ensure that anyone who needs a level of assistance through an assistive technology actually gets the right tool is set up with it, set up with it in a timely fashion. It actually works, and then they have support for it. What we found in years before is it was taking days and weeks for people to get to the right person, to get to the right tool, to even get it set up. And by the time that that was done, you could imagine the frustration level of someone feeling like I'm new in the organization. I'm not sure how to get my job done. I'm just trying to get acquainted. And now I don't even have what I need to be successful. So that assistive technology support desk is something that's had significant impact and value for our employees and something we're really looking to scale and even roll out more broadly from a global presence perspective in the coming year. So definitely a lot of great work, but as I said, always more to be done. Um, and we definitely haven't quite hit every 50,000 uh, of our technologists uh, in the same way in terms of their own kind of knowledge and education, but we're absolutely on a journey to do so. That's great, Danielle. Uh, what, what great resources you have there. No question about it. Um, you know, I, I wish we have uh, had a lot more time here. You know, time is zipping by on us here. And I know we started late. I hope our UN uh, leaders that are monitoring us will give us a few extra minutes here. I, I'd really like to, to go to the uh, the next question. And, and I know, Suzanne, I know, Danielle, you have some thoughts on this. Tom, you have some thoughts on this. And, you know, given that we're, we're coming out of a pandemic, employers have implemented a lot of different working arrangements, right? Including hybrid, uh, remote working conditions, although many organizations are starting to return to the office. And I guess the question is this, 
how can technology advances be used to include individuals with disabilities in whether it's remote, whether it's hybrid, or, you know, eventually people are going to come back to work, right? Eventually they will. The, pen, the pendulum will swing. Um, and the question is, how does it affect on-site work environments as well? And I know you've touched on some of these, but um, uh, Cecilia uh, or, um, or Suzanne, would you like to start on that? And then we can go to Tom and, Dan and Danielle. Sure. Um, I, would, I would say that the, the pandemic was a complete paradigm shift for us. Sure. I mean, the, the UN was a very traditional organizational um, operation, right? People came to work. We're, we're big on meetings. I mean, we are, we are uh, you know, that type of an organization. So overnight, our entire reality uh, was fast forward. Uh, it went from like, a you know, we had flexible work arrangements and there was some remote, remote work as an option, but this was, this was the new now. I think what was uh, helpful was that the entire world got a crash course That's at the same time, right? And, and, it, and it, it was from your, your home and to work and parents, everyone, grandparents, we had to learn Zoom and Teams and, and how to reinvent ourselves, you know, online. Um, and so th the most obvious lesson we learned was that ge geography no longer needs to be a barrier. And that automatically brings with it the lesson that we can open employment to, to people who have mobility challenges or who are better served in an environment with more assistive arrangements. Um, and even if that's not every day, just to, 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 to give options, right? Um, I think that we, we have a lot of work to do. As we saw today, we are increasing our reliance on technology. And so that brings value, but it also brings risk. And we have to find ways to mitigate those risks. What if, you know, option A doesn't work? Does that mean no one can work that day? And, and that's that backup, that resiliency, you know, that's something we're, we're, we're trying to, to build on. The other thing I would say is that, as you mentioned, Roger, some of us are coming back. So we're now moving into the new normal. And I can tell you, uh, we just spent a lot of time creating open spaces. Open spaces, when half of the people are doing what we're doing now, become chaotic. And we're rethinking the actual physical experience of a hybrid environment when really a, continually a, a, a huge portion of your workforce is on a remote arrangement. So this hybrid, how does that happen? Um, and I think there's also the psychology of an organization where people to are, are sometimes just not there, that how you re-inject re the cultural aspects that we're, we're just beginning to learn. And their technology is coming in with new forms of engagement platforms. You know, this whole metaverse is, is a new space where we're trying to imagine how to bring more social connection into the space. Um, I think that, that we really are excited. It's a real turning point for us. I'm very uh, interested in working with the partners that are on this panel to learn from them. And I'll just say one other thing to, to Detalia's point, technology doesn't stop, right? Today's version changes over and continuously. And so accessibility has to be in that cycle at all times. So every release, we recheck, we, we adjust. It is not a, a one-time investment, right? It's, it's a new way of thinking. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne. Tom, uh, being with Salesforce, a great organization, technology leader, talk to us about this question here about following the pandemic and your thoughts on it. Yeah, uh, first, I'd be uh, remiss to not call out that uh, after all this information throughout this session, one thing we always have to remember is data privacy. Uh, 
I think yep. it's often forgot, uh, especially building. We want to move so fast, especially with accessibility and pushing product teams that we need to protect people with disabilities and make sure that that we're doing the right thing. And it can't just be US centric because laws around right. the world are so different. And I saw somebody ask about resources, uh, country specific. We do need to focus more on yep. providing guidance for everybody on a, on a country level. Now, going into what we do, it's less of a, a technical exercise, but something that's been hugely helpful. And it's been in the company for a while, but it's been pushed recently um, for every team to do. And it's called a teaming agreement. And basically it means your team gets together and brainstorms, like what are the successes and what are the opportunities for your team when it comes to working together? And that's everything from how do we communicate together? What is each person's personal preference um, to, you know, how do we handle hybrid uh, and remote work? And our team has a unique uh, ability to bring the uh, disability perspective to it because most of us on the team have a disability, which means we can help uh, provide more things for uh, the company as a whole. And I think that it helps everybody. Um, it was interesting to see all the different communication uh, preferences and all that. And it made me realize it's easy for us to criticize the gaps of every platform, but not understand the unique like positives they, they bring, such as, um, and a lot of platforms are now using integrations. And that means that you can use multiple apps within one. So you can do your calendars and you can, and your emails and group chats all in one place. And it comes back to documentation and training. Um, if you were to give me, and I wasn't, uh, you know, a disabled person and knew anything about accessibility, a step-by-step detailed checklist, go here, do this. I'd be way more willing. It'd be so easy for me to do these accessible things for all people. Um, and we just don't have that. We have very general information out there that's hard to understand with terminology people don't understand. So we need to come together and really you know, change that tone and theme and be less technical in how we do things and more inviting in that. So I'm right. looking forward to the future as I'm seeing that change happen uh, more recently. All right. Thank you, Tom. You know, we're, um, we're, I, I want to honor the time commitment that we had uh, to work within <laughs> with the United Nations. And so I, I think we're getting to that point now where we're going to have to summarize our, our last minute thoughts here. And I say last minute thoughts because they would like to give each of us a minute to summarize our thoughts on this, uh, on this topic. So, um, uh, if you could, uh, we'll start with Cecilia and give us a one minute summary on your final thoughts about technology, uh, digi digital accessibility tools that can help narrow the employment gap between those with and without comments, uh, without disabilities. And I'd, I'd ask you to try to limit it to one minute so we can stay within the United Nations uh, timeframe here. So why don't we start with you, Cecilia? Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Roger. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, I believe that there is uh, a lot of opportunities uh, for technology to facilitate uh, the inclusion in the workforce. Uh, and we have examples, for instance, uh, we have uh, one of our colleagues today here, uh, uh, she's a Parkinson, um, she has Parkinson, and she is using machine translation to produce uh, her, uh, her work in a better way. You know, she's a professional translator, she knows how to translate, but in order to facilitate typing, 
And you know, the, the examinations that we are doing here at the UN that are remote also are helping, uh, you know, bring uh, translators uh, with disabilities to the workforce uh, in a larger numbers than before. Uh, but for instance, yesterday, uh, when we were preparing for this meeting, we realized that in our job openings uh, in my division, we don't have a note about reasonable accommodation. So it's very good to have the tools, but if we don't tell colleagues, uh, the, the, the candidates, that we can provide accommodation, maybe they don't know that we are willing to do it. So I think that this, this is a learning process. Technology uh, is, uh, is facilitating but also, you know, uh, it's not also only about technology. We also need to grow uh, and to uh, start, uh, uh, as I said, engaging with the colleagues with disability, with the candidates with disabilities to make a more inclusive workforce at the UN. Thank you. Thank you, Cecilia. Sunday, would you like to go next? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, I want to first circle back to Danielle's point on accountability, because I think that's a really good starting point. And, you know, at Microsoft, we very much realize that the decisions that we make every single day, whether it be engineering focused on, on the products that we, we create or on, on the culture that we're creating at, at Microsoft, that it has real impact on people including our own colleagues, our, our customers, our customers' customers. And we take that responsibility very, very seriously. And in addition to that, we also see it as an opportunity because disability really is a strength to be able to create products uh, and cultures that within Microsoft and within um, the catalyst that it creates um, beyond to be able to create experience and products that open doors um, with technology. And when I think about technology and the impacts that it has had in, in my own life, um, I'll give, I'll age myself here in the fact that International Day of Persons with Disabilities was actually founded on the same day that I was born. So, you know, we're having this discussion uh, 30 years later. Um, and while I acknowledge the, the progress that has been made because, I mean, quite frankly, as a person with a severe physical disability, um, I would not be here today if not for the opportunities that technology has given me. But also I would be remiss uh, to not acknowledge that while I have you know, been given access to a computer and a, a career in technology, I am the exception. I'm, I'm certainly not the, the rule and the, the World Health Organization um, has stated that 80% of people with disabilities live in, in low and middle income um, countries and only one in 10 of those people with disabilities uh, have access to the assistive technology that they need. And so while a computer, uh, someone in a wheelchair has opened doors for me in, in unique ways to be able to participate fully and equally in the workplace, that is not the same for every single uh, person with a disability. So as we're looking to build an accessible workplace, um, we really must be intentional uh, that the solutions that we are creating are, are equitable. And, you know, accessibility really is a fundamental human right that every single person um, should have access to. So that's where I would, I would leave that. And I know it's really, it's a big conversation and not one company has ever yeah. solved that. But I, I do ask that every single person, regardless of whether you have a disability or, or you, you want to be an ally in your role 
um, to look for ways to start to bridge that divide um, in whatever capacity that you have. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Sunday. Uh, Suzanne, how about a one minute summary from, from yourself? Thank you. Um, you Thanks. know, I'm building on what Sunday and Cecilia has said, the UN plays um, a vital role in, in amplifying the values of human rights and the charter. And um, I think we have to also apply those values inside the organization. And our first step to, to opening barriers to employment and really building a community in our staff uh, of, of an inclusion, you know, inclusive staff population brings day-to-day contact, changes our thinking, and allows us to exercise those muscles. As Cecilia always says, we have to build those muscles inside of our own organization. Um, I would also just like to say that um, we have to learn disabilities are not always visible, right? There's an entire spectrum of of types of um, people that we have to build an an environment, an enabling environment around so that we can be the strongest uh, organization that we can be. Um, And I guess, I I think I would maybe end on a message of hope, even just in the past few years, I feel like the inside the organization and around us, and, and maybe in part because of the new visibility that technology has on its impact, I really do hope we keep driving this momentum because the momentum is picking up and it's becoming uh, life-changing actually in, in many scenarios such as Sunday described. So I'm very happy to be a part of this. Thank you, Suzanne. Appreciate that. And Tom, how about a one minute summary from your perspective? Yes. Uh, first, I want to thank the Tableau Foundation, which is uh, one of the platforms in the Salesforce uh, ecosystem uh, for their investment in equity when it comes to data and some of the investments they want to make over the next uh, few years in disability initiatives with data. We need data. I see a lot of things in the chat right now with the questions about data. So I'm so glad that they wanted me to be here, which I don't know why. Why me? Um, but if I could leave with one thing, and it's kind of off the tech technology beaten path is like, we use the words diversity inclusion so much, it should be belonging because belonging invites everybody. And it's the sense that humans just want to feel. And I bring up a story is like, I grew up with no family um, except my brother. I was homeless for times. And in high school, I always wanted to be the cool kid. I wanted to go to the parties. I was never invited. Finally, I was. And when I went in, I felt no sense of belonging. I felt awkward. I was in a corner and it really set me back. I was like, I'm never going to be loved. I'm never going to be liked. I'm never, I'm just going to be a ghost in my life. And that comes from not having that sense of love and and all of that. And it's different. I come here, I look at Sunday and happy birthday to you. We become close friends and I'm going to call you after this and sing you happy birthday. And when you have that sense and you feel like this is a space I belong in, people get me, people care about me and other people with disabilities. It is I just want everybody to feel that. So whatever we have to do to get there, and I'm just going to say that word forever and get everybody to do it, belonging. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Danielle, your summary comments, please. Sure, absolutely. So building off of what everyone said, one of the taglines we use in the firm is that employee experience is everyone's responsibility. And I think we've all echoed the same sentiment. Accessibility is everyone's responsibility as well. And as much as technology can be a great enabler, 
if not done well with the right construct and support, as we've alluded to today, it could also be a real detractor. And so we need to be very mindful of that. So the one thing that I would leave in terms of parting words is no different than every consumer facing product does all day, every day, they listen to their customers, we need to listen to our employees, we need to listen to persons with disabilities in terms of their needs, and really ensure that we're delivering the right solutions to meet those needs. Let's not make assumptions, let's not assume that we, we know best and that we can um, recognize kind of how best to deliver and enable technology, again, to be an enabler, not a detractor. So listen, empathy, get voice of employee, get voice of customers, Celia alluded to, to it as well. We need to know our workforce, we need to know our people and having that ear of empathy is the heart of user-centric approaches to delivering great software and technology to everyone in the world. Most importantly, our employees and the people we work with every day. So thank That's you so best. much for the honor and privilege of being part of this today. Thank you, Danielle. And I'll, I'll give uh, my final thoughts here as well. And, and first, of course, thanks to the United Nations, the leadership uh, who helped make today even happen and for pushing this out to the, the, the global uh, United Nations audience and those in the general public as well. And secondly, of course, to this great panel, Suzanne, Cecilia, Sunday, uh, Thomas, and Danielle for their insight on this topic of innovative technology and digital accessibility tools. You know, my opinion is that, um, that, that the commitment to accessibility has to be driven by industry leaders. And it has to include input from as Danielle said, customers with disabilities, employees with disabilities who are gonna help drive the accessible by design features in not only products, but services as well. And if products and services help people with disabilities make connections and communicate more effectively, it's gonna help make dramatic improvements to not only the mission of those companies who hire and retain people with disabilities, but also help to functionally improve the lives of all, all users. And, and I include all users. So as the, this new workplace that has created, uh, that we've created following the pandemic, whether it's in-person workspaces, whether it's hybrid, whether it's uh, remote for some organizations, technology and accessibility will be a key factor in determining how functional the workplace is gonna become. And, and for many employees with disabilities, it can be really um, a difference between being a key contributor, like Thomas was saying, to the group or not participating comfortably in that group. And if our listening audience today wants to make a difference, I would leave you with this thought. Be a force multiplier and ask the business community to ensure, and your organizations, to ensure that accessibility is part of their product and their service designs of the future. And if we do that, we're gonna leave very broad shoulders for the next generation of leaders to build on. So thank you very much. And uh, the United Nations, I'll, I'll let the group that is managing this uh, take over from here. Thank you. Thank you and a big, big round of applause to this uh, you know, amazing group. Moderator Roger and speaker Cecilia, Danielle, Suzanne, and Sunday, happy birthday. And Thomas, I, this has been an incredibly rich discussion. I know there was no time to go through some of the very, very good uh, uh, questions in the chat, but uh, if the panel members, uh, the panelists will, uh, will remain uh, for after the second, the second segment, perhaps, uh, Roger, if we count on you to check whether there will be a possibility to address some of those 
questions. So let's leave that open. And um, and um, again, this was really really interesting and uh, and uh, and an interesting topic. And I've myself learned a lot in terms of the role of technology in in facilitating employment for persons with disabilities. We're going to have a second panel, which will uh, will start soon. Um, but before we do so, um, with everyone's permission, we'll take uh, a four-minute break. So it's 10, 11 in New York, and we would uh, resume at 10, 15 New York time in four minutes. Uh, we'll start with the second panel discussion, which is going to focus on advancing employment for persons with disabilities post-COVID-19 return to work. So um, we're going just to... Uh, 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 break for four minutes and we'll be back very, very shortly. And again, big, huge thanks again to all the participants and uh, of the first panel. Thank you. There are more than 1 billion people with disabilities in the world. Utilizing their rights is a matter of justice and an investment in our common future. It is also central to realizing the core promise of the 2030 Agenda, to leave no one behind. The United Nations Disability Inclusion Strategy is my commitment to achieving transformative change, to raise the UN's performance on disability inclusion not just in its policy, but also in its programs and operations. Our destination is clear. A world in which all people, including people with disabilities, can enjoy equal opportunities, have a full say in decision-making processes, and truly benefit from economic, social, political, and cultural life. Every person should expect nothing less. Together with people with disabilities as agents of change, we can build an inclusive, accessible, and sustainable world for all. Thank you.
welcome back. Um, and um, we thank you also the Secretary General for the remarks that you've seen during the during the break. We're going to kick off uh, our next panel discussion. But uh, before we do so, still a couple of things. I understand uh, we are now ready to share uh, a video of JP Morgan Chase's business solution team, which um, opens a window in for us to see how technology can play a role in advancing employment of persons with disabilities. So, um, so we would like just to just to share that contribution with you. JP Morgan Chase's business solutions team is our firm-wide expansion of diversity and inclusion to include neurodivergent colleagues from the IDD or intellectually and developmentally disabled community. My role is part of Best Squad. I've been working here for almost two months. Never thought I'd be in a corporate office job like this in my whole entire life. BEST is a program that allows individuals from the IDD spectrum to be able to come into the workforce and utilize their skill sets and their capabilities that is aligning directly to the tasks that we have within the firm. I basically just get on the computer, uh, make sure addresses are correct uh, for different businesses across the world. I do the matching addresses and locations and I also do research. We are working with our sourcing partners and we do skills assessments, see if we have the right talent, we find the right jobs that fit those skills and match them together. And then we do 60-day apprenticeship, kind of like our interview period. The value proposition is identifying parts of processes, a component of a process where that task could be performed better by a person from the IDD community than their neurotypical colleagues. And you could think iterative, repetitive for a, a neurotypical colleague, what we identify as a poor motivational fit. We have empirical data that shows our guys will knock this kind of highly iterative workout with very, very few errors. Working on the computer? Yeah. You just, do, do you work pretty fast on the computer? Yeah. Our guys are better motivational for that work, so we've had no attrition, very, very few absences, but most importantly, it's better quality work. I just focus on the job at hand. I try to the best of my ability and I'm happy to be here. Makes me feel really smart. I'm learning a lot. I'm learning more every day. We've had good success in Dallas, but we would like to take this to other operations and other uh, strategic sites within JP Morgan. In fact, our goal is to hire 500 employees in the next five years in this space. There's many different stigmas that's attached to working with individuals within the IDD spectrum, but what you've heard, what you think you know, may not be true. I think one of the most important things to consider about what we're doing is nothing about this is charitable. We're not taking in resumes and finding stuff for people to do. Everything we're doing is fully integrated in the business process, value-added, and sustainable opportunities. We've seen this can work. It will work. It is working. Go Chase. <laughs> I never thought I would be here at JPM Chase. I thought I would have been stuck at movie theaters and doing that for the rest of my life. It's a great job and I'm glad I get to work here.
Okay, so before I have uh, the honor of introducing our second panel, just uh, and we begin our next discussion, I just uh, would like to stop for a moment and let us take a quick quiz from our audience. And uh, welcome to new participants that I have, may have joined after the first segment um, as well. And the quiz is uh, question is, what percentage of the world's population are people living with disabilities? See a few answers already popping in on screen. I think we have the questions, the, uh, the answers provided, yes. And you can see indeed the correct answer is 15%. It's a very, very knowledgeable group of participants. Thank you. So let me, let me uh, uh, um, uh, introduce uh, the second panel discussion. Um, which will be focusing uh, on the impact of COVID-19, the pandemic on persons with disabilities um, in the workplace, uh, with specific focus on career advancement, teleworking, return to the physical office space, and mental health. Moderating our second panel will be Jim Sinochi, who is the Managing Director and the Global Head of Disability Inclusion at J.P. Morgan Chase. And our another fantastic group of panelists, we have Elaine Katz, the Senior Vice President of the Kessler Foundation, Tabita Halley, software engineer from JP Morgan Chase, Therese Fitzpatrick, who's the global lead of the UN system, workplace mental health and well-being strategy at the UN Secretariat, and uh, uh, Laiki Anderson, Chief of Talent Acquisition and People Program, at UNDP, Shireen Kiani, the Inclusion and Accessibility Specialist at UNICEF, and Luciano Costantino, who is the Diversity and Inclusion Specialist at UNFPA. So over to you, Jim. Thank you very much. And uh, it's always good to see that video that that was shot in, in uh, Texas, in Plano, Texas. And uh, we brought in our IDD community uh, to do jobs that able-bodied people um, got bored doing or didn't do as well as, as these uh, members of our community do. Uh, as, a, as, a, as a global statement for us, our, our firm hires people with disabilities because they're qualified to work here. We do not hire people just because they're disabled. And I, I got to make that a, a clear point. Um, and some of my analogies that I've, I've spoken to you about over the last four years, uh, you know, still, still hold true that, you know, people want to give us people with disabilities because they're disabled and we're looking for talent. And so um, anyway, listen, I'm happy to be back with the UN, with, with my UN colleagues for the fourth consecutive year to talk about this. I'm very excited how much the UN has positioned this topic 
and made it important since I've gotten here. And I, I know the UN was at this for many years, but as me being a part of something that's special and with all the colleagues at the prior panel, uh, how smart and innovative we are, um, I'm more excited than I've ever been for the uh, uh, disability inclusion to really take hold and be a part of society. So look, as a perspective for this panel, COVID now sits on top of disability inclusion, in effect, making it more difficult uh, for people with disabilities to do what we do normally. For example, um, the ability to put on masks. I, I would normally commute from my home in Massachusetts and take a train to Boston. I'd get off, I'd get out of my accessible van, I have an accessible train with the conductors helping me get on, but I can't put a mask on by myself and I can't take it off. So this creates other problems, including I'm worried about the Delta vi uh, virus uh, or, or strain that may impact my ability to breathe or get sicker. I'm a C5, C6 quadriplegic. I'm paralyzed in all four limbs. I have chest capacity that's um, good, but it's not normal. And I worried about keeping my job, going to work, and, and doing what I do. The bank has been terrific uh, about this, and they're also uh, looking at how to work with people like myself to make sure we can keep working and do what we have to do. The COVID thing has really put a damper on people with disabilities and on how we think, how we get to work, um, et cetera. So, this topic is is still very important and it's 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 going to be a topic we're going to see for the next you know decade in terms of how people function and uh and get to do the things we do for example um when there is a crisis with transportation or even crime in the streets the people with disabilities are vulnerable so there are a lot of things we have to worry about in addition to just getting up every day, going to work and trying to do the best that we can. And I think that we'll, we'll hear uh, more of this insight from our panelists. So thank you for making the introduction. So the, the first uh, topic, uh, we'll, I'll ask Elaine Katz to take on and describe herself. But the question is, the COVID-19 pandemic has profoundly impacted many aspects of our daily lives including the way we work. What, in your view, Elaine, are the critical issues to consider for persons with disabilities as some organizations seek a full return to the physical space? What steps can organizations take to ensure a safe return to the office? Thank you, Jim. Um, I'm so honored, like everyone else, to be here on this International Day of Persons with Disabilities. Um, I'm an older white woman with glasses, wearing a dark pink sweater, uh, with also with a gold necklace. So to your question and point, Jim, I think there are three critical areas that people with disabilities are concerned about. One, you've, you've mentioned already, safety. Um, the second I say is flexibility. And the third I'll call is my career, which we don't talk about too much. So the first is a pretty obvious point. Do I feel safe? Um, just because there is a clean workplace with everybody vaccinated, that still may not be safe enough or feel safe enough for individuals with disabilities. Um, another concern may be what are my employer's protocols on COVID? 
What are the rules that have been developed and shared? Who is the point person? Is there a team, safety office, uh, you know, safety team, a safety officer, or in our case, at Kessler Foundation, we used our facilities manager to be the point person for our COVID. And then who is responsible for activating this and developing the rules? Um, oftentimes it's HR. For us at Kessler, we used our HR team and senior management, um, but mainly to make sure that you know what's going on, it's been well communicated. Um, you also mentioned a concern, which I have too. Do I feel safe to getting to and from work? What are the risks associated with my transportation route or how I get to the office? Whether it may be using an Uber, whether it may be driving my own car and then having to get for, into from a parking space to the building, whatever it may be. I mean, these are really only the beginning of the safety questions. Uh, workflow stability is a really important topic too when you've been working from home maybe a year, a year and a half. For example, if I go back to my work setting full time, does that mean I totally lose my flexibility? Or can I split my time between working in the office and working at home in a hybrid situation, especially if I have a disability that may have flare ups um, and I need to take some breaks during the day? This has been really great for individuals, whether or not they have a disability that need to take those frequent breaks during the day. Or is this really an either or situation I have to be in the office or you know, that's really it with my job. Um, the first two points are pretty obvious. I think the third point is really what I'd like to speak about a little bit is, you know, how does this shift back into the workplace affect my career? Um, you know, what am I gaining by being in the work setting? Do managers really want their best people in the office so they can see their work and assign more tasks? Am I missing out on opportunities for mentorship, for learning the job? And I know people have been hired during COVID, so I'm missing out on meeting new colleagues. Will I have the same access to technology and accessibility? We've talked a lot about that, but video conferencing and captioning have all been enabled for people working remotely, whether or not they have a disability. And now, if I go back to the office, am I going to lose that? Is that going to be special, um, that whole accessibility? Um, so, you know, I think those are some of the considerations for individuals. When you're looking at the employer, again, it's important to maintain and mitigate the risk so you have a safe workspace. Whether you decide to have a COVID mandate is important uh, if you're not regulated by country to already do that or by profession. So again, as I mentioned, having those protocols in place, assessing your physical workspace, looking at the air filtration system, the partitioning space, the social distancing space, having that person to help employees as the point person understand all of these um, situations. But importantly, it's the gradual transition from work, from working at home to the office. I mean, how are you doing that? You can't, everything, no, nobody likes transitions overnight. So it's really one of these, at Kessler Foundation, we did a gradual three or four month process where increasing time was spent in the office. So this isn't really an exhausted list, but I do think there are just a couple few more points to consider. Has your business changed its policies as a result of COVID? Are you viewing, how are you viewing disabilities in the workplace now, especially with the um, advent of long COVID? Did your policies around recruitment and accommodation change? And are your in-person jobs truly, what you thought were in-person jobs, truly in-person? Or can it mean, you know, scheduling to see clients on four days a week and having one, one uh, day um, to stay at home? So, you know, the other last point I will leave on is what happens when an employee with disability wants to continue working from home and you have an in-office policy? So I'm going to turn it back to you, but these are some of the considerations, I think, when you're looking from the employee's perspective and from the employer's perspective.
No, I, I think you hit the right points. I want to uh, ask you a, a supposition. Given what we've seen over the last two years and now going into possibly a third, um, do you think that, that work as we know it will morph into something else uh, that will be more palatable for employers? I know a lot of employers, I, and, and there's, a, you know, there's a, a good argument for having people go to work and collaborate and do it how we used to do it. But uh, do you think that there will be a significant change that may even become permanent in terms of how we work in the future? I think COVID has changed everything in our lives. I don't see us going back to really doing anything the way we did it before. And when it comes to the workplace, I think flexibility is here to stay. I think it's going to be up to each employer to figure out how that works within their setting, um, because obviously there are um, jobs that have to be done in a certain location. Um, but I think flexibility can be built in. It may be up to supervisors. Um, I, I think that's some sort of flexible schedule is here to stay, and we'll see how that morphs over the years. Thank you for that. Um, uh, Likey, uh, persons with disabilities continue to face employment-related barriers. What can organizations do to support the recruitment and retention of persons with disabilities in the, work, in the workforce? Can you give us your view? Yeah, thank you, Tim. And uh, I'm uh, Luca Anderson, and I'm uh, the head of talent acquisition in UNDP. And I'm uh, excited and honored to be part of this panel today. And I would like to also wish everyone a happy International Day for Persons with Disabilities. I'm a, a white woman, and I'm in my 50s. I have blonde hair, and I wear glasses. And today I'm wearing a black jacket. But thank you for your question, Jim. Well, first of all, I would say that from a human rights perspective, ensuring that persons with disabilities have equal access to employment opportunities is not only the right thing to do, but it's also the smart thing to do. Because persons with disabilities uh, represent a talented and untapped labor market, and they can also be strong drivers of change and innovation in organizations since they are often used to uh, having to overcome challenges and finding solutions which require flexibility and creativity. But specifically in order to support recruitment and retention of persons with disabilities, uh, like organizations could apply a twin track approach. Uh, and this is in fact what we are doing in UNDP. Because first of all, disability inclusion is a cross-cutting issue of the employee cycle and it should be embedded into our organizational practices from outreach and recruitment process through onboarding and development, performance management, and also leadership. But secondly, as there are often many barriers for equal employment opportunities for persons with disabilities, we also believe that targeted efforts and programs are also needed uh, to uh, recruit uh, and retain persons with disabilities in the workforce. And one example of such a targeted initiative is uh, the Talent Programme for Young uh, Professionals with Disabilities, which was launched in 2017 as a joint pilot initiative of UNDP and uh, the UN Volunteer Programme. And now more UN organizations have joined the programme. And it's the first of its kind in the UN system 
and it has shown a strong potential for being a channel for bringing in new talents to, to UNDP and to the wider UN system and, and the development sector in general. This program offers uh, uh, young professionals the opportunity to gain exposure, develop leadership skills that can take them into a career with UNDP. And since 2017, we have deployed 33 young professionals under this program. But in addition, we also using, in UNDP, we're also using other young talent programs like our junior professional officer program and our recently launched graduate program. Uh, we're using these programs as tools to attract people with, or persons with disabilities and build talent pipelines for our organization. And we have been successful in selecting uh, young persons with disabilities for these uh, two programs. However, to build a diverse workforce and, and an inclusive culture, it requires that we do not only focus on who we hire, but also how we hire and how we manage our people. So therefore, we are implementing a number of initiatives to, to remove barriers for recruitment and retention. And some of these initiatives are, are like relate to, to targeted outreach, social media campaigns, and also building or establishing partnerships with organizations of persons with disabilities uh, uh, to conduct joint information sessions and to engage with potential candidates. Also, our job site and recruitment system are accessible. We have an accessibility checklist that we use to learn about the level of accessibility of our offices. And then we have established a reasonable, a reasonable accommodation fund, and, and we also have guidelines on implementation of reasonable accommodation measures. But I would like to mention, mention as we're also talking about the COVID-19 uh, uh, work environment and, and experience that the remote and flexible working, which has increasingly become the new way of, of working uh, uh, during the global pandemic, also offers better opportunities for organizations like UNDP, for instance, to include persons with disabilities and also for persons with disabilities to engage into our work. But equally important when we talk about retention, it's also uh, important to raise awareness and equip managers and teams, the tools and resources to support individual needs. And, and therefore, what we do is that we organize uh, disability awareness and etiquette uh, webinars uh, for, um, for managers and offices that are hiring persons with disabilities. We have also recently uh, launched an e-learning course on disability inclusion, which was developed jointly with the UN Secretariat. But just to conclude uh, like my reflection on your question, I would like to say that we as organizations, we need to focus not only on hiring, but also on offering real career and development opportunities for employees with disabilities. And, and we should hire persons uh, for, with disabilities for our mainstream work, because often we experience that persons with disabilities work in areas related to disability inclusion or disability mainstreaming and programming. However, I think that we need to hire also for our mainstream and regular areas of work and support career development and build, type, ta and build talent pipelines for leadership roles. 
Because in incorporating persons with disabilities into leadership positions and also recruiting more persons with disabilities are key steps to create accessible and, and, and inclusive organizations. Thank you, Jim. Like that, you know, the, the fact that you brought in leadership, I find terrific and fascinating. That's still that one of my uh, uh, points of interest as, you know, once uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, and, and you heard it in the last session from Danielle, uh, regarding the technology, the accommodations, the strategies in order to get uh, the environment right, then it's time to make sure we talk with our managers in your organization and mine to say, just don't see people with disabilities as laborers, see them as leaders. So, but, but there's a two-pronged approach to that in terms of how do you cultivate people with disabilities as leaders at the same time that you're developing them. So, you know, just a quick question that you didn't anticipate perhaps, or perhaps you did. Is there, I, I could tell by how you explain it, that you are looking for leadership opportunities with people with disabilities. And, and how has that been uh, received by the managers in the organization? I think what we are doing uh, is that we are specifically focusing on building pipelines, talent pipelines, and we do it through these uh, young professional programs that we that I mentioned. This the dedicated program we have, and also other young professional programs. And then through these, like people, like the young people who join these programs will uh, like uh, will participate in in uh, in dedicated learning programs to build both their knowledge uh, and, and also their skills and 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 and, the, and, and, and neuter their leadership potential. Uh, and and, uh, and then we will also what we what we're also doing is that we're doing targeted or dedicated career support to to the to the to the to the um, to the people that we have in our in, in the talent pipelines. But I think this is so yes. Oh, oh, I over. think that that's great. I, I just think that's great. I, I, I still encourage you to go forward. Thank you for that. Thank you. Tabby, um, on, on your question, what are good practices for creating a more inclusive workplace for persons with disabilities? Are there specific examples of strategies or approaches that can be shared in this regard? And um, I, I know as part of your job, you're a uh, a software engineer, and I think everybody should know that as well. Plus a singer, uh, you've been on uh, a bunch of interviews, and I, I think you're a terrific, successful role model for all of us. Thank you so much, Jim. That means so much to me. I'm so honored to be here. My answer starts with that inclusion begins at the front door, or as Tom said in the previous panel, belonging and this enforcement starts at the front door. I recall during my interview process, you know, my professional career having instances where I would be in the lobby about to announce to the front desk that I'm here for an interview, of course, dressed in suit. And I can see a staff member come from the floors and say, are you lost? You must be looking for the commercial bank. You must not be in the right place. And another instance where after many months of interviewing, you know, well into the interview rounds, uh, meeting with one of the managers I would be working with, encountering a situation where after uh, we went past the 
moments of he, him realizing that because I'm in a power wheelchair and I express that I cannot lift my hand to shake his, and, and then I get right past that because I'm used to getting past awkward situations like that and just saying, I'm so excited to be here and finally meet you. He incredulously responded with, can you even type on a computer? And later I learned, wow, he had my resume under his arm of all my skills, accolades, experience, and talent. So that put mental notes in my head. I'm interviewing too. A lot of people with disabilities looking for a job are interviewing as well to find out, well, if at the forefront, getting into um, this organization, I recognize that the disability inclusion factor expressed on the career website is only on paper and not really exercised because I don't even have this manager um, believing in me, that speaks volumes. So I think it was mentioned a couple of times that a top-down approach, having managers drive a culture change, that's something that I would also suggest as a strategy. Having that backing for myself once I am starting to work and ongoing is very important because I'm always focused on trying to prove myself beyond my disability, that I am able. Imagine I'm doing that, and then I want to ask for an accommodation that I need so I can do my best. And then on top of that, I know that I might need to ask for more in the future. It's not set in stone that when I onboard to an organization, that's all I'm gonna need and I'm good, done. So it's very good for there to be a proactive mindset on both sides. And it's very effective from the top down. My physical weakness um, deteriorates and I've had instances where I've had to change which assist assistive technology I need. How nice it is when a firm can also have that conversation with me and maybe even be proactive to say, I've discovered that there's this new tool or this new tangible um, item that might help you. And so that's another thing that I suggest. Another thing that can happen is the dynamic of my team might change. And especially during the pandemic, I already know how to work from home and I pace myself so that during the time that people are usually commuting, that's the time, let's say that I had the breaks that I need. And then I make up the time in off hours. But when people that don't usually work from home find that they are working extra hours, now they are around the clock online and not used to the times that I am not online because those are the times I usually have a break. Those are things that have changed as well. So having that recognition and being able to have that conversation with management is really, really helpful. On the music front, thank you for mentioning that. At the front door, also, music venues, literally, um, sometimes are not accessible, and I'm supposed to perform there. That happened at my college, where I could not perform in my choir. That happened at music venues. And that's why another thing I suggest is promoting that two-way conversation. Because I, in the music front, I am also a part of um, an organization called RANT, Recording Academy for Music Professionals with a Disability. And that is the Recording Academy uh, resource 
the ones that host the Grammys. So they're turning to us to find out how can we help with suggestions for their inclusion writer. So in summary, yes, I really do think that the strategy is top down, starts at the front door and must be ongoing. Uh, thank you for that. And, and I know uh, I had just gotten to the bank before you did and I've watched your progress. I, I think you've done a terrific job and a great representative for the bank. And, and continue to feed me things that you see that we can improve and move forward because uh, that's the only way I, I think we'll get as far as, as we need to get and, and make and, and just make companies like JP Morgan Chase more um, receptive to people with disabilities because they're qualified to work here. So thank you very much for thank that. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, Luciano, the... Uh, Reasonable accommodation is key to removing workplace barriers uh, to ensure full inclusion and participation of persons with disabilities. What are some good practices for providing effective accommodations for persons with disabilities in the workplace? Um, if you could take a stab at that, I'd appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. Thank you all for inviting me to, to this event. First of all, uh, I'm Luciano. I have uh, brown hair, dark brown eyes. I'm wearing brown blue glasses and uh, a white shirt. And, and I'm wrapped in a single breast navy blazer with a colorful pochette. Welcome to everyone. So first of all, uh, let me allow you to tell you something. Just right now, as we speak, UNFPA is just launching its first ever UNFPA disability strategy that is in line with the uh, disability strategy initiative from the UN. And it's, it's, it's called we, we Matter, We Belong with the Side, because we want to put the person first, as always. And of course, it's a strategy that presents also key actions on the relevant areas, including reasonable accommodation. So I encourage you to look at our website after the event and download the strategy. So to answer your question, first of all, the, the way the question is structured, it already gives a, a, an answer, so to say, because Reasonable accommodation is anti-discrimination measure that enables persons with disabilities to exercise their rights on an equal basis with others, and it's the key for disability inclusion. Of course, at UNFPA, we understand reasonable accommodation that is a measure that, one, benefits specific individuals, two, may modify or complement standard policies and services, three, may be provided in specific circumstances, and four, may be offered immediately as needed. It is important to mention, and I would, I would uh, highlight this, that this measure should follow a human rights approach, as our colleague from UNDP also mentioned. So it should ensure the full and equal enjoyment of rights, obligations, and opportunities for all, including in the workplace. In other words, it should focus on empowerment the individual, so having providing equal access rather than merely providing assistance. This is an important element of disability inclusion strategy. And of course, it, it is something that is relevant to all contexts. So travel, meetings, events, office, workspace, transportation, all elements of a, of a, of a life cycle. And this is the definition that is very much aligned with the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability, the CRPD, and also, of course, follows the recommendation and definitions of the UN Disability Inclusion Strategy, of which we had also a glimpse from the introductory video of Secretary General. 
So UNFPA has been taking different measures concerning reasonable accommodation. As I said, the UNDIS, the Disability Inclusion Strategy, offers all UN agencies and beyond, because we're open, we give guidance to everyone ultimately, great tools and advice on how to strengthen system-wide accessibility for persons with disabilities and how to mainstream their rights in all that we do. So the, the, the strategy provides an accountability framework with key areas and indicators to report on. Among these criteria and, and indicators, reasonable accommodation is one of them. And it's, it's part of the inclusiveness pillar. So as you can see, there are all important elements to consider. And this specific pillar calls for actions aiming at guaranteeing the active involvement and participation of persons with disabilities in the workforce, as well as in all activities implemented, which of course includes also career development, as I said. And it's also a matter of physical um, inclusion because it, 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 it allows the construction of a working and programming environment that removes physical barriers and of course does not include attitudinal, communicational, and informational barriers. As an example, we are right now developing um, a communication engagement guidelines that we called Think Accessibility. And it's a, a document that provides useful tips and tools on how to conduct inclusive meetings, for example, and how to make information, minutes, and materials available to all, including persons with disability of all kind. And as part of these guidelines, for example, we have already implemented on our website uh, accessibility feature, which you can see, again, if you go on our website, available on each page, allowing, allowing persons with different visual impairments to completely and fully access every single page of our website. So I, I don't want to take too much time. So in conclusion, reasonable accommodation is also mentioned in our policy on employment of persons with disabilities which states, among other things, that our organization will provide persons with disabilities with reasonable accommodation to ensure, to, to make sure that they enjoy equal privileges and benefits on the job as others, including training, career, and development opportunities. In addition, UNFPA has a fund in place to ensure reasonable accommodation is available to persons with disabilities. So Luciano, I, I, I gotta ask you a question though too. Is this? Do you have a centralized group of people that that does this, or is it decentralized? At at my bank, we have a a centralized team that handles accommodations worldwide. So they all come into one place. We they look at the request and then they push it back out. So how does it work at the UN? Is it similar to that? So the the the, the, the reasonable accommodation is a is a request that uh, when a staff member comes on board and requests a special accommodation, they submit the, the request to HR, of course, with any sort of supporting documents from the medical unit, and HR uh, in consultation with the medical unit, if needed, the manager and the facility uh, people will look at this request and provide reasonable accommodation. Of course, there are different requests. Every request is different because there are some people who have a, phys um, a physical visible disability, some other have an invisible disability. And of course, that has to take into account uh, individually. And of course, on top of that, as I mentioned, there's also a budget for that that has been recently increased and it's constantly monitored every year in order to adjust and, and uh, increase if need be. And that's what we, we did too with our lines of businesses. Uh, the, the, uh, the funds were held at the top so that there wouldn't be any 
you know, struggles with, you know, who's going to pay for it. So that, yeah. that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Um, I'll, I'll move on to the next as, as uh, we're trying to meet the time of uh, Bell here. Uh, on Shirin, uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic highlighted uh, the importance of mental health. Uh, what are recommendations to staff for protecting their mental health and well-being, as, as well as privacy, as we slowly uh, return to work? Thanks, Jim. Hi, everyone. This is Shireen. I am a woman with dark brown eyes and dark brown curly hair. I'm wearing a black shirt with yellow and red embroidery and a black jacket. So to answer your question, uh, Jim, uh, mental health has been called the pandemic closely following the COVID pandemic. Most of us have been affected in one way or another. For employees with disabilities, it is even more so due to the barriers and discrimination they face on a daily basis. I know myself, I have had increases in anxious and depressive feelings this year. They have impacted um, my daily life and, and my work as well. I am lucky, however, because I work in the field of disability, so it's easier for me to disclose uh, the challenges I have and ask for accommodations, but that's not the case for everyone in the UN. I wanted to share with you all some data I received from colleagues in UNICEF Jordan. They did a study with their employees on mental health and discovered that two-thirds of the team there are not sleeping well. One-third sought out psychological support for anxiety and depression. One-third are taking medication. Um, and the most believe very strongly in the mandates of UNICEF and that our work has impact. Many are burnt out and fatigued. Um, as a result of the pandemic. Uh, and everyone is fearful that if they're open about having mental health challenges, it will impact their career and how they're treated by their colleagues. So the number one issue is stigma, which my colleague Therese will speak about more after, but it's the main thing that we need to address. We have at UNICEF a network of employees with psychosocial disabilities who shared some thoughts with me today related to your questions. Uh, what they said is that we need to make the types of accommodations available for persons with mental health challenges more well-known and more offered across the U UN. Um, so what are those kinds of accommodations for mental health? Well, sometimes it means someone taking a temporary leave to get the support they need, as you would if you had a car accident and a physical disability. Um, and then to know that your job is preserved and that you have a chance to return slowly to, to your job. Flexible work options, which has increased during um, COVID and UNICEF actually has a really good policy on this so that people can attend therapy appointments during stressful days or meetings. And most importantly, it's to know that within their team or their country, there is someone to talk to. Um, at UNICEF, we have a network of personal support volunteers across the world in different offices. And why this is important is most people are not going to disclose anything to their managers. Um, there's often a sense of guilt, a sense of failure when you have a mental health challenge. Um, you're thinking that I mismanaged my situation. I don't have enough resources compared to other colleagues, and that's why I'm struggling. So we need to help people move away from that kind of thinking. And lastly, a couple other things my colleagues told me would be good to protect mental health is to regularly send out well-being self-assessments uh, to employees to see if there's a change in motivation, sleep, appetite, 
uh, irritability, and people can see if they're starting to get on the verge of having difficulties and, and seeking support. And then the last thing I wanted to share is uh, we need to be much better at training managers on talking about mental health in the workplace. They don't really have a vocabulary around how to discuss this in team meetings and with employees if they notice someone has had a change of behavior and is struggling. So, so we need to um, really up the ante on the training for managers. So I want to pass it back to you, Jim. Thank you. You know, one of the things you may want to consider, and, and perhaps you, you already did, is we have, we have a campaign at the bank called This Is Me. And it's where adults um, uh, talk about their mental illness and, and their strife uh, personally to our whole network at the bank. It's volunteer. It's not forced. But we, we found that uh, more and more people are leveraging that. And, and we've heard that it's changing the community of, of the bank as people feel more free to share who they really are. And so mental illness doesn't really become uh, a, a stigma, even on the job. And so uh, we write them very carefully. We're, we're very careful about uh, the GINA law, which prohibits, for example, parents talking about their children with mental illness. But we found a way to be more inclusive um, and, and, and those stories uh, resonate with everybody around the world, at least our world, at, at the Chase Bank of uh, 250,000 employees. And so, it, you know, and again, I, I, uh, the, the things we, we keep hearing is that we're making the company feeling, uh, feel smaller because people are more compassionate and they got a, a fuller understanding of their colleagues. Uh, and I, I think it's becoming more humane in a way. So it's something that the bank hadn't seen before. I've only been there five years, so I only know what I know now. But I, I, I offer that to you as a possibility to figure out how to talk about it respectfully uh, for people uh, to raise that awareness and, and that kind of culture. Thanks, Jim. Just quickly to respond to that, at UNICEF, we um, do do some coffees and bagels in some of our offices, but it's not that common to talk about mental health in this casual, normalized way. Yes. And we wanted to maybe start a blog with, you know, senior managers and colleagues at all levels to share more openly, as you say, so we can just put it up in the forefront. So thank you for those ideas. No, thank you. It's anything we can do to help and, and, and get this right. And so, uh, Therese, uh, uh, for you uh, and our final question here, uh, workplace mental health support has become a business imperative. What would you recommend for employers to address stigma? We just talked about it a little bit. And what are some of the strategies that organizations are taking to address mental health in the workplace? I think we lost her. Okay. Got maybe she got disconnected from town. Jim, we have lost. Uh, we've lost Therese. Maybe let's uh, if we can uh, move to another. If there's still any other question from other of our great panelists, perhaps we could move and then try to bring you know to have her address the question once she's able to return that'll be that's fine. okay 
Yep. There she is. There is. I'm so sorry. Just as I, we were coming on, I got chucked out of the meeting. So my apologies. Oh, Amaz- amazing timing. Drama, um, drama is great. This is great. You, you kept us in suspense. Thank you. I'm now completely calm and ready to talk. Um, thank you for having me here today. It's, it's an absolute honour. So my name is Therese Fitzpatrick. Um, I am, I'm female. I've got short, dark hair. I'm wearing uh, purple glasses and I, I'm wearing a, a white pattern scarf this, this morning. Um, so we know that the pandemic has had a significant impact on mental health and well-being, and we know that that's actually impacted on all of us. So it, there are some advantages, I think, in the sense that we have gotten better at being aware of mental health and well-being for all of us, and, and we've all had to take action to ensure we're, we're looking after our own mental health and well-being at this time. At the same time, we know that there's been a lot of negative impacts for, for, for everybody and we've done a number of surveys across the UN that's really shown this. We also, I think, need to be really mindful that um, for people who had a pre-existing mental health condition that there are additional stresses, um, isolation, difficulty accessing mental health care that we ne- really need to consider um, how can we make sure that they are able to um, receive the support that they need and that we're making appropriate accommodations around that. When we're talking about mental health and wellbeing, we absolutely need a comprehensive approach. So we've, we've talked a little bit about stigma and I'll talk about a few, a few things we can do in relation to that. But we also need to be thinking about prevention, ensuring we've got support for personnel experiencing mental health condition um, and ensuring that um, we are um, considering issues around stigma and discrimination. The UN um, launched a workplace mental health and wellbeing strategy in 2018. So we just started some work around that before the pandemic hit. And um, as you can imagine, it's significantly changed um, the focus and the work that we're doing in that area. So if we think about um, think about stigma first, um, we've heard a little bit about what we can do at an individual level, but stig- changing stigma and discrimination really requires a system-wide um, workplace approach. So we, the, the first thing I always say is we need to hear people's stories and events like this are really important. We run a whole range of events for World Mental Health Month. Um, we've got um, people's stories and those events on our website and we can share the details of that. Um, but we need to, we really need to be able to normalise and understand that, that there are so many people who are experiencing mental health condition and there is no shame in that. We need to be really mindful in organisations of language and I know I still hear it all the time. I know I need to be mindful of it myself but we need to be prepared to call out um, the, the inappropriate language that we hear when people are talking about mental health and well-being and ensure everybody from leaders down know what that is and know, know that, um, how they should be talking about this. The, one of the, the other key thing is that making sure we're thinking about this at a systemic level, so um, ensuring we, our policies um, do not create um, additional discrimination, ensuring we don't have assumptions that people experiencing a mental health condition um, aren't appropriate for hiring or promotion. And we've heard obviously other stories about that this morning for people with other disabilities. 
And the key, and I think you noted this earlier, Jim, is around training for leaders and managers to make sure that they understand, A, how to support somebody with a mental health condition, um, how to ensure that they are doing all that they can to reduce stigma and discrimination, and also to make sure that they're looking at prevention within their, um, within their purview. And we'll share the links to some of the resources that we've developed. Um, we've got podcasts, we've got fact sheets, and for people within the UN system, we've recently launched some training, online learning training for leaders and managers that focus on reducing stigma, looking after their own health and wellbeing, and supporting a staff member. Finally, I'd just like to talk about prevention. So the other part of the question is around what, what are organisations doing? And so organisations that are really creating changes are looking at all of these levels, supporting personnel, um, reducing stigma, but also thinking about what can we do to reduce um, the risk of poor mental health with, from, from the way that we work. So flexible working conditions are absolutely imperative. And part of that is also thinking about how do we give people a level of control over the work, the, the way that we have that flexibility. So for some people, that may mean that they, they can choose which days they work in the office. It may be around controlling the way that they have their work day. If mornings are really difficult, um, how can, can they organise their work so that they're working in different parts of the day or having breaks when they need to? Um, we know that obviously there has been so many challenges as we've moved into working more at home to, to have that, that balance and the harmony between work and life. So how do we ensure that people don't feel that they need to work um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I know we're really good in, our, in my department at not having um, email sent over the weekend or not having an expectation that people unnecessarily work at different, uh, in different ways. And again, for this, leadership is absolutely imperative. We need to create these changes from the top. We need to think about how are we setting up our workplaces so they support everybody and, and paying um, particular focus on for people who are experiencing um, additional challenges, whether that be through a mental health condition, through an other disability, or, or from other life circumstances that they have. Um, which, as I said, we've got a range of resources available to the public. Um, encourage you all to have a look at those. And thank you for having me here today. No, I, I think what, what you, the litany of things that you mentioned is, is been a journey even for us at the bank. And, uh, you know, instead of a negative experience, I, I think we've found a more inclusive experience as, as people get to understand this. Uh, you know, we're normalizing this. It, it's, you know, before it was whispers in a doctor's office and, you know, you're, you're ashamed to go out and talk about it with someone else. And I, I think in, from what I'm hearing you're, you, you saying, and what we're trying to do is it should not be something that's shamed, but something that should be embraced. And, uh, and, and I, I, I think people get through it very well when it's normalized. Um, so I, I applaud you for that work. So thank you very much. Um, I, I think we've wrapped up uh, our portion of this. So I'll turn it back over to the, uh, the moderator, the host. Thank you, Jim. And again, big, big round of applause and huge thanks to you for the amazing work facilitating the discussions and also huge word of thanks to uh, our incredible panelists, Elaine, Tavita, Laiki, Shireen, Luciano, and, and Therese for sharing your perspectives. I think it was really, really powerful for all of us 
to learn from these discussions on what steps organizations can take to ensure a safe return to the office for persons with disabilities and as well as to what steps that can be taken to support the recruitment and retention of persons with disabilities in, in the workforce. So thanks again. This concludes the second panel. And but does not conclude, you know, all the events and uh, and uh, the, and segments we have for you today. Um, I would now like to invite uh, uh, Madame Marta Elena Lopez, Assistant Secretary General for Human Resources at the UN, and she will bring the first two panel discussions to a closure before we start the third segment uh, of uh, our event today. Marta Elena, over to you. Thank you, Miguel, and good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I have glasses, and today I have a red uh, dress, and I have brown eyes. First of all, a big thank you to our great panelists and our moderators for such a rich uh, dialogue. And I also want to thank uh, the global audience uh, for participating today, in spite of the challenges that we had with technology. Whenever we have these events, uh, I myself learn so much, and I trust that you have also learned uh, and enjoyed uh, these two hours uh, of exchanging uh, our experiences, our stories, and our challenges. I remember today, uh, the day we launched uh, the United Nations Disability Inclusion Strategy in June 2019. It seems a long way, uh, but still uh, one of the statements of the Secretary General uh, on that occasion was that he highlighted the need for the United Nations to lead by example on disability inclusion and become the employer of choice of persons with disabilities. This statement continues to be as important as that day. And why? Persons with disabilities historically have high unemployment rates and face attitudinal and structural barriers in employment. But COVID-19 pandemic has further widened that gap. And we really must break the cycle to ensure that no one is left behind. Today, we heard from our expert panels. And for example, how can we leverage technology to advance employment? I would like to invite each and every one of you to take the next step by leveraging the lessons that we have learned today and during the dialogues and advance the disability inclusion goals. The achievement of the 2030 agenda depends on this, and we are all responsible for this. I would also like to use this wonderful occasion to launch two important initiatives. First, then this has been in close collaboration with UNDP, and pleased to announce the rollout of a disability inclusion course of you and personnel. This course will help us build the capacity of our workforce on disability inclusion. And we urge all our personnel to complete this course. Second, 
I'm also pleased to announce the launch of the new employee resource group on disabilities, but that reads disabilities. Membership is open to all UN system personnel and their dependents and to all the personnel of our permanent uh, missions. I invite you to attend the launch session starting straight away. I would also like to first thanks our partners, Kessler Foundation, JP Morgan, Salesforce, Microsoft, International Disabilities Alliance. Without you, we could not have had this event and many events to come. Thanks to our UN partners, UNICEF, UNDP, UNFPA, IOM. A big thank you to all our panelists. Thanks to our interpreters. And finally, thanks to our great moderators, Roger and Jim. We can always count on you. And I hope I can invite you for the 22 already event. And finally, it is a pleasure for me to address the global community of persons with disabilities and say, happy International Day. Thank you and see you in 2022. Thank you, Martelena, for the closing remarks. And um, I know we're running a little bit uh, uh, out of time. So again, thanks, thanks to all for sticking with us. We're going to take a five-minute break before we continue with our next segment, which, as uh, Martelena has indicated, will be the launch of uh, an employee resource group for persons with disabilities at the UN. So... We'll see you in uh, at uh, 11.27 New York time in five minutes. Thank you.
Welcome back. And uh, welcome to our uh, back. At, welcome to the participants that uh, and, and colleagues we may have just joined. It's my pleasure to introduce a new employee resource group, UN Disabilities, a UN system-wide personnel-led initiative for personnel dependence and personnel from permanent missions of the, at, at the UN. I will let the speakers introduce themselves and explain a bit more uh, about what the Employee Resource Group is about. And I would like to invite Daniela Bass, who is the president of UN Disabilities, as well as the director of the Division for Inclusive Social Development in the Department of Economic and Social Affairs for her remarks. Hello everyone from uh, Dubai, uh, celebrating the 3rd of December, the International Day of uh, Person. Share briefly with you uh, what is uh, UN Disabilities. Well, already by the title, you understand that we want to bring the abilities to the United Nations. What is this? UN Disabilities, capital letters? Well, it is a self-help group and of persons with the disabilities or with a staff member uh, who has a um, family member with a disability or others. I'm sorry, I need to stop. If it's okay, Danielle, I'm sorry. I understand the uh, interpretation is again, not being able to be seen. Could I just get Sue's help to see if we can address that and if we could restart once that's available. Apologies. Hello everyone from uh, Dubai, uh, celebrating the 3rd of December, the International Day of uh, Persons with uh, Disabilities here at the Expo. Let me share briefly with you uh, what is uh, UN Disabilities. Well, already by the title, you understand that we want to bring the abilities to the United Nations. What is this UN Disabilities, capital letters? Well, it is a self-help group and of persons with the disabilities or with a staff member, uh, who has a um, family member with a disability or others that I will tell you in a moment. But how did it all start? Well, I recall one day a few years ago, it was I think back to about three years ago, I met with the representative of a permanent mission and uh, we were talking about the importance of making the United Nations organization more and more accessible, not only in terms of architectural barriers, but from a cultural viewpoint. And so we thought that, while sipping our, our cup of coffee, we thought that we really had to create something to support the United Nations system to be in an inclusive, non-discriminatory and accessible environment for all UN personnel, delegates and other stakeholders with the disabilities or disabling conditions, or those who support family members 
with the disabilities, what we call stakeholders. And we thought, why do not we create a simple questionnaire? And uh, we were very lucky because uh, the uh, staff union helped us to circulate it globally uh, to the whole UN family and permanent missions and see what the responses are when it comes to issues related to employment, human resources practices, access to UN premises, official meetings, documents, including events and uh, communication materials, and much more. Uh, of course, insurance, uh, how um, staff members who have a family member with a disability uh, see the future of their uh, family member, particularly there are children, if it was easy to access education, tons of questions related to quality of life within the UN system, but also outside of the UN system. Well, we decided that this was going to be our mission statement. And this is the mission statement, statement of UN disabilities. When we prepared the mission statement, together with few others um, who gathered uh, around uh, our table and uh, throughout the months and decided to be part of this uh, self-help group. Well, the mission also includes to empower and advocate for equality of opportunities and for the rights and interests of all stakeholders working within the UN premises, in all duty stations and UN operations, to raise awareness about disability, promote the implementation uh, of the United Nations Disability Inclusion Strategy that was actually adopted and implemented after we created this self-help group. So you see how much we're in sync and support the UN, therefore, to be an effective global leader on inclusion and of course, when it comes also to accelerate the implementation of the 2030 Agenda and also beyond. Therefore, all United Nations staff members, consultants, UN volunteers and interns on a current contract and retirees, along with staff of permanent missions, may become members of UN Disabilities, while members of the board are those who are still actively employed by the United Nations system. After me, there will be Jeff Bretz, who re will represent, if you wish, uh, the other side that is being I, Daniela Bass, a staff member with a disability. I use a wheelchair. He will represent uh, the, the, the parents of children who have a disability. In any case, in our inaugural board, besides myself, and uh, Jacqueline Eidenbaum, who's the vice president. We also have the focal point in Geneva, Facundo Chavez, our treasurer, uh, Michael Silberg, uh, the secretary, uh, who is Jeff Bratz, and we also have an officer at large, that is Rosangela Berman um, Biedler, who uh, works in UNICEF, others in DGC, uh, OIOS, uh, OHACCR, DGACM, and um, of course, DESA in my case. We invite you all to uh, be part of this self-help group, be part of the uh, important uh, um, strategy that our Secretary General has launched and more is going to be shared now by Jeff 
who will also illustrate you what are the uh, outcomes of the survey that uh, we did uh, a couple of years ago. Then there was COVID, so things have slowed down a bit. And those of you who would like to volunteer, who have knowledge about uh, the use of social media and web and so on, please do contact us. We needed to, to join efforts also in, in that sense, put your skills at the disposal of an accessible, inclusive United Nations. So thank you very much. Thank you, and I think it's uh, over to you, Jeff. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you to the organizers. Thank you, Miguel. Thank you to the organizers, to HR. Uh, the, the previous speakers have all been just tremendous. Um, before we go to our presentation, uh, we do have two other members of the board uh, with us, the inaugural board of UN Disabilities. And uh, we wanted to just, uh, on a personal note, because this is a personal affair, uh, introduce ourselves quickly before we uh, get to sort of the, the business side of things. So we have Michael Zilberg and also Facundo Chavez who will join us in a moment. Uh, so over to them just for a quick self-introduction. Good day, Jeff. Good day, everybody. Uh, as was mentioned by Jeff and Daniela, we are forming or have formed a support group for employees who are interested in disability matters, whether by experiencing personal disabilities or being family members with disabilities who need support. I am Michael Zilberg. I work for OIOS. Uh, I have been with the organization for more than 30 years by now. And um, I am interested in promoting the rights and potential of people with disabilities within and around the UN system. Thank you and a good day to everybody. Thank you, Michael. My name is Facundo Chavez. I'm the Human Rights and Disability Advisor for UN Human Rights in Geneva. Um, I'm a person with disability myself and will be the focal point for UN Disabilities in Geneva. Thank you very much. Thank you, Facundo. Thank you, Michael. Now it's back to me. My name is Jeff Brez. I hesitated to also add that I'm a, a white male in my 50s. You can't tell on Zoom, but I'm pretty tall, 193 centimeters. And I'm wearing a, uh, for this special occasion, I'm wearing a blue blazer. It's been a long time since I've worn a blazer and a tie and sort of a pinkish shirt. And I'm really thrilled to be here. Uh, I'm also the daddy of an incredible uh, boy with multiple disabilities. He's extremely determined, and, and he's the reason that I am a part of this group. Uh, so, uh, you know, we undertook a, sort of at the beginning of all this, we undertook a, a staff survey with the support of many people, and we'd like to present those, um, uh, basically the outcomes of the survey to you. Uh, so we developed uh, this survey. It was developed by UN and permanent mission staff. <clears throat> Every, you know, all of it, the questions and the back end and how to make, you know, the sample uh, and the questions and the data uh, really useful. Uh, it was open from the 2nd of February 2018 to the 21st of April 2018. It was distributed worldwide with support from UN staff, also permanent missions and the staff union. And I have to 
say a big thank you to everyone that helped us disseminate it so widely. In particular, the staff union, uh, we're really grateful. We received over 2,000 responses, including from 29 UN entities, more than 10 peacekeeping and political missions, and 64 permanent missions. There were 115 responses. Uh, and those responses out of the 2,000, 198 were from persons who report that they have a disability themselves, and 479 were from persons who have a family member or dependent with a disability. Uh, next slide. So the survey covered attitudes and perceptions, types of disabilities, main concerns of staff, a draft statement for uh, UN disabilities, a mission statement uh, for which we requested feedback, and also demographics. Next. So uh, I'm not gonna go through every single uh, thing that we learned, but here are the highlights. So uh, one question or statement that we asked for feedback on was, you know, are disability issues adequately addressed at the UN? Uh, so the statement is that disability issues are adequately addressed at the UN. And if you look at the sample of all respondents, 19% fully disagree, fully agree, sorry, we're gonna go clockwise around this um, pie chart. 28% somewhat agree, 23% somewhat disagree, and 13% fully disagree that disability issues are adequately addressed at the UN. Now on the right, we have a subgroup of the respondents with a disability and also respondents with a family member with a disability. And um, you know the responses are a little bit different. Uh, but actually quite similar, but obviously a little different. So uh, we don't have the actual numbers inside these pie charts, but you can see, and I will explain that, uh, you know, respondents with a disability respond similarly, but with higher percentage, percentages of disagreement. So about the same number uh, fully agree, a little less maybe uh, that disability issues are adequately addressed. Um, a smaller number somewhat agree, and clearly larger numbers are going to disagree um, that disability, disability issues are adequately addressed, and again, a larger number uh, disagree, uh, fully disagree. And uh, similar for respondents with a family member with disability. But I think the interesting thing about this slide is that generally there's not too much of a difference whether you have a disability or you have a family member with disability or um, uh, you were an interested supporter, uh, there's not a big, big difference in these um, responses. Over. Next slide. Uh, we asked a disability type. Jeff, sorry uh, to interrupt. Before you go to the next slide, can I, I just need to reconfirm that, uh, that, uh, that uh, sign language interpretation can be seen just when true is pinned? Yeah. If uh, Sue can confirm, and then I will hand back to you, Jeff, with no apologies worries. and thanks. Sue or Chidi, let us know when, when we're okay to proceed. Uh, okay, I get the green light, so... Uh, thanks for your patience, and Jeff, and so back to you. No worries. Thank you very much. Uh, so next, uh, types of disabilities. So this is with staff with disabilities. 
identify themselves. And of course, you could uh, have more than one response, but uh, physical disabilities were 59%, sensory 21%, and cognitive 13%, and 33% other. Uh, that's what this bar chart shows. Next slide, please. Uh, and then a family member, a staff with a family member dependent with disabilities. Uh, this bar chart shows that among these staff, 47% uh, reported a cognitive disability, 46% a physical disability, 25% a sensory disability, and 34% some other kind of disability. Next. So what are the main concerns of staff with disabilities? Um, this bar chart shows that 56% uh, of staff with disabilities uh, uh, reported that uh, career advancement opportunities are their main concern. We gave um, several options and uh, uh, respondents were able to choose up to three. So the top with 56% was career advancement opportunities was a concern. The next concern at 49% was work-life balance. The next concern at 41% was insurance, uh, health insurance. Uh, the next one at 40% uh, was the overall ability to fulfill my professional roles and responsibilities. The next concern at 30, 29% was entitlements. Sorry, I skipped one. The next at 32% is reasonable accommodations in the workplace, 29% entitlements, 25% uh, physical access, and 70% other concerns, 17%. Next. And then we have the main concern of staff with family members with disabilities. Uh, the main concern at 61% is work-life balance. The second at 47% is insurance, and I think uh, we're referring to health insurance, uh, first and foremost. The next at 44% was entitlements. The next at 42% was career advancement opportunities. The next at 27% was overall ability to fulfill my professional roles and responsibilities. The next at 19% was reasonable accommodations in the workplace. The next at 17% was physical access and uh, then 18% said other. Next slide. Some other uh, specific concerns that were raised were duty station mobility and travel, stigma, uh, which you know we are all continuing to learn a lot about, um, low awareness or, and or sensitivity among staff and management, isolation, low number of UN staff overall with disabilities, and um, inclusion policies at the United Nations International School or UNS. Next. So where are we now? Uh, you know, our inaugural board was created without a vote, obviously, because we uh, uh, have not gotten to that stage, but it is an inaugural board and uh, obviously a, a membership drive will be held and a um, you know, proper election. Uh, we have final mission statement and statutes based on the survey feedback and feedback from many others as well. Uh, we'll be posting those on a new website soon. And we held our first general meeting actually um, last month. Uh, and now actually what's missing from this slide is now that we are officially announced as the um, employee resource group of HR for the implementation of the disability inclusion strategy. And we're really thrilled about that and uh, for the, um, the confidence that's placed in us. Next.
So our mission statement, I'll read it, to support the UN system to become, to be an inclusive, non-discriminatory and accessible environment for all UN personnel, delegates and other stakeholders with disabilities or disabling conditions, or those who support family members with disabilities, our stakeholders, with regard to employment and human resources practices, and with regard to access to UN premises, official meetings and documents, and including events and communications material. And the second part of the mission statement reads to empower and advocate for equality of opportunity and for the rights and interests of all stakeholders working within the UN premises and all duty stations and UN operations to raise awareness about disability to promote the implementation of the United Nations Disability Inclusion Strategy and support the UN to be an effective global leader on inclusion and the implementation of the 2030 Development Agenda. Next. So again, membership, I think uh, Daniela Bas explained this, but all staff members, consultants, UNV, uh, and interns on a current contract and retirees, along with staff of permanent missions or member state delegates may become members of UN Disabilities. Next. Uh, the board uh, consists of our president, Daniela Bass, uh, Vice President Jackie Adenbaum, Geneva Focal Point Facundo Chavez, who you met, our treasurer, Michael Zilberg, whom you met, me as the secretary and an officer at large, uh, who is Rosangela Berman-Beeler from UNICEF. So our next steps. Um, to contact us, you know, we don't have a sign up uh, set up at the moment uh, for membership, but you may uh, feel free to contact us and please do at un.dis.abilities at gmail.com. Uh, we do need volunteers and I have two bullets here, but actually we need three um, volunteers. One is to be our webmaster. It's not a lot of work, but we need to someone uh, with a little bit of expertise to help us there. We need someone to run our social media accounts. We do have a Facebook and a Twitter. I'm going to put those in the chat. Please follow us and we will start being active next year. There are a couple of posts, but you can see it's not been active yet. Uh, next, uh, thank you, Shireen. Thank you so much. Uh, launch uh, our website. That will happen soon so that we can post the statutes and the mission statement and give updates about our meetings and our activities um, and advocate through stories. Uh, we need to launch our social media and our next uh, general meeting will be in March. So keep an eye out for that. It will be listed on ISEEC and uh, all uh, of the sort of employee resource groups and staff groups around the UN system on disabilities should um, probably help us spread the word about that. Uh, next. Is that the last one? Okay, so that's it from us. Um, I'm not sure if I see, I'm gonna share now our handles on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, thank you very, very much. Um, so I, I guess uh, I'm just going to close. And what I'd like to say is, you know, we're here uh, for three reasons. We're here to support each other. We're here to advocate for ourselves. And we're here to help the UN to lead in this space. And, uh, you know, we've heard uh, so much and we've all lived through a lot. And I think that uh, we see a lot of progress, but uh, there's still too many areas where, you know, the rubber is not hitting the road. And so we're here uh, on behalf of staff to let senior management and our partners everywhere 
know when that rubber is not hitting the road <laughs> so that we can all take whatever action we need to do to make sure that progress is actually happening and we see it uh, happening in our workplace. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff, for the, and to you and to all the members of the board and thanks, huge thanks for the presentation and sharing all the information on how colleagues will be able to be part and you know, participate in, in, the, in the employee resource group. So this concludes our events for today. And uh, I, I really want to thank again, uh, the excellent work, in, uh, inspiring work uh, of all the moderators, the panelists, all the colleagues that have come and uh, and, uh, and and made presentations and provided you know reflections and on 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 the issues that we've covered today, and um, and also the board members of the employee resource group for the presentation. Huge thanks also to our audience and thank you for being so patient with us today and sticking and participating in the event. And uh, last but not least, also a big thanks to our interpreters who have helped us make this event more accessible. So thank you, happy International Day, and we hope to see you in another forum. Thanks again. Bye-bye.